Then I turned my thoughts to consider wisdom and also madness and folly. What more can the king's successor do than what has already been done? I saw that wisdom is better than folly, just as light is better than darkness. But I came to realize that the same fate overtakes them both. Then I said to myself, the fate of the fool will overtake me also. What then do I gain by being wise? I said to myself, this too is meaningless. For the wise, like the fool, will not be long remembered. The days have already come when both have been forgotten. Like the fool, the wise too must die. So I hated life. Because the work that is done under the sun was grievous to me. All of it is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. I hated all the things I had toiled for under the sun because I must leave them to the one who comes after me. And who knows whether that person will be wise or foolish. Yet they will have control over all the fruit of my toil into which I have poured my effort and skill under the sun. This too is meaningless. So my heart began to despair over all my toilsome labor under the sun. For a person may labor with wisdom, knowledge, and skill, and then they must leave all they own to another who has not toiled for it. This too is meaningless and a great misfortune. What do people get for all the toil and anxious striving with which they labor under the sun? All their days their work is grief and pain. Even at night their minds do not rest. This too is meaningless. A person can do no better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in their own toil. This too, I see, is from the hand of God. For without him who can eat or find enjoyment. To the person who pleases him, God gives wisdom, knowledge, and happiness. But to the sinner, he gives the task of gathering and storing up wealth to hand it over to the one who pleases God. This too is meaningless a chasing after the wind. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Solomon has already talked about wisdom. If you've been paying attention, you've been with us. He already talked about wisdom at the end of chapter 1, so he brings it up again here. But what I want you to understand is back then in chapter 1, Solomon was talking about his own personal endowment from the Lord and application of intelligence. But what he's talking about here is something more broadly. He's talking about the acquisition of knowledge in general. In other words, at the start here, Solomon is considering the merits of going to school, of earning one's degree, if you will. Is pursuing an education the means to the good life we all seek? Now, m most of us, if not all of us, were raised to believe that, yes, this is so. That an education is the key to the good life. Pay attention and apply yourself in class. Listen to your teacher. Do your homework. Earn good grades. Go to a good college. Graduate with honors. This is what many of us were told. This is many of what many of us have passed on to our children. Because after all, knowledge is power, right? With a degree in hand, graduates are supposedly prepared to improve upon humanity's greatest achievements as well as solve the worst of its problems. Many of you have sat through at least one, if not many, graduation speeches. With degree in hand, we can improve upon the achievements of humanity and solve the worst of its problems. It's believed that education can resolve almost 
every conceivable problem that individuals and communities face. If everyone only had a better and a higher education, there would be no political instability. There would be no international tension. There would be no conflict within communities and between neighborhoods. There would be no personal stress and chronic depression. But Solomon's inquiry into the field of scholarship, the halls of academia, into the heights of wisdom, the recesses of madness, and the limits of folly leave him unconvinced as to the lasting value of an education. Now, before those of you who started going to college, who may be here, say, that's it, mom, dad, I'm done, Solomon said so. Or those of you who did and paid off all your student loan debt, or are helping your children or grandchildren to do that, say, what's the, well, that was a waste. Don't miss that Solomon concedes wisdom has certain advantages over ignorance. Showing up for instruction and engaging one's studies, whether in the conventional classroom or the learning center of everyday experience, provides a significant advantage over just ditching school and playing hooky. The difference between the two, Solomon says, is night and day, just as light is better than darkness. It's better to live with some order and structure than to exist in perpetual chaos. And more than this, beloved, we are predisposed. We are predisposed towards learning and knowledge. As we grow and mature, there's a longing within us for permanence, a deep desire for significance, motivating us to seek, to investigate, to discover. The pursuit of knowledge is what drives Solomon on this quest. It is an endeavor that has motivated many a wise person in our times. World-renowned physicist Stephen Hawking comes to mind. He has dedicated his life to investigating the origin of the universe, ironically, while seeking to disprove the existence of God. And there's the rub for Solomon. There's the rub for Solomon. The pursuit of education restricted to the scope of human wisdom, restricted to the scope of all that can be learned under the sun, produces, Solomon says, limited advantages limited to this life under heaven. And if we doubt this, Solomon just goes right, goes right to the punch, right? All the knowledge in the world, Solomon writes, cannot prevent or defy death. All the collective wisdom of the ages does not transcend or go beyond the grave. Whether you're a Rhodes Scholar or a high school dropout, mortality is the great equalizer. Whether you're truly brilliant or you act like a complete idiot, the grim reaper comes for both. And we've, we know, we don't like to talk about this. What I'm about to say is taboo. Because what Solomon is talking about is taboo. We all have heard the stories. We all, some of us, gosh, some of us have even experienced it within our own families and circle of friends. The person who eats right, exercises regularly, is in perfect health, who suddenly drops dead of a heart attack or is attacked by an aggressive terminal cancer or is killed in a freak accident. No matter what we do, no matter how hard we fight against it, death is coming for all of us. This is one of the linchpins of Solomon's argument throughout Ecclesiastes, the inevitability of death. <laughs> Why bother learning anything then? I mean, 
Why not just play the fool instead? And many a person has said yes to that. Beloved, again, hear me and hear Solomon, hear Scripture. The urge to seek, to know, to find truth is noble. It's necessary. The lesson to be learned from Solomon throughout this book is any education, any education in whatever form it takes, any education divorced from the knowledge and respect for our Creator is fraught with frustration and failure. It's not just the problem of death that we can't solve on our own. I mean, Solomon just goes for the ultimate. But it's not just the problem of death we can't solve on our own. Solomon, you're going to see this throughout the next couple of chapters. He's going to be adamant as he looks at other things. Life's most soul-stirring problems remain unresolved even after the best of human wisdom tackles them. Consider. Consider the sum total of all of our knowledge, all of our progress, all of our technology, Think about it. In all the years you've been on this earth, all the things you've seen, all the progress that's been made, and ask yourself, has any of it really made the experience of life richer, better? We have more capacity and convenience than ever before when it comes to resources and travel. We have more information, more information. We have more knowledge recorded on the hard drives of one of our personal computers than entire nations possessed in their ancient libraries. We have more free time. We have more improved means of communication. And yet, there have never been so many unhappy or unhealthy people in our world. So many illiterate, so many hungry, so many diseased, so many disowned. We have more scholars of history, consultants in business, experts in nutrition and exercise, counselors in marriage and parenting than ever before. And yet for all our knowledge of history, we are no less violent. There is no less discord in our world. Bankruptcies still continue to occur. We are still the most obese nation in the world. Marriages and families still struggle as never before. Because, beloved, without God, the quest for truth, for permanence, for eternity is fruitless. Dedicating oneself to the acquisition of knowledge, earning degrees, and boosting one's intelligence is meaningless if we refuse to look beyond ourselves, to receive the revelation of God we cannot attain on our own. To receive the revelation of God we cannot attain on our own. Truth, as we know, is found in a person. The power of knowledge, and knowledge is power, but the power of knowledge is ours through a relationship with Jesus Christ. In the person of Jesus Christ, we find the answer to death as well as the solution to our own brokenness and limitations. As Solomon talks about an education. What he drives us to is something that I've said many, many times, but I will repeat again. We can know a lot about many things, but the only thing that matters, the only knowledge that can save us 
is in Christ. Do you know Jesus? That may seem like the most idiotic question to ask a bunch of people sitting in church on Sunday. But I guarantee you from my own personal experience as a pilgrim and as a pastor, it's not a bad question to ask. Do you know Jesus? More than a feeling, greater than an idea, bigger than a philosophy, Do you know God in person? Do you know God in the flesh? Do you know God through the Spirit, the living God here and now and forever in Jesus Christ? Solomon's quest and the limits of education under the sun bring us back to this essential question. Truth is found in a person. The power of knowledge comes through the relationship with the living God in Jesus Christ. So Solomon now has fancied the thrill of pleasure, the pursuit of an education. In the last part of our reading today, he reflects back on the benefit of having a career. He detailed all of his accomplishments for us last week, a few verses earlier in chapter 2. You can go back and look at those if you want a quick reminder of his resume. But Solomon here in our reading today, as he surveys all his hands have made, as he he looks back on all his hands have done, the ultimate yield, the end result of a lifetime of work for Solomon is no different than the rest. All of it, Solomon laments, all of it is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Solomon admits, did you hear him? Solomon admits all his work in the end brought him nothing but misery. Did you hear that? All his work in the end brought him nothing but misery. So my heart began to despair, Solomon writes. It's literally translated, if we were to be wooden about it from the Hebrew, it's literally translated, I turned my heart to despair. Solomon confesses his disillusionment with life is of his own making. In all he has labored to produce, there is no pride and joy. He grieves over all he has created. And again, if you look at that resume, why? Why does he grieve? Why does he from that extrapolate that all of our work is meaningless? Well, if we listen carefully, first it's because Solomon voices frustration at the shortness of our time on this earth the shortness of our time to enjoy the fruit of one's labors, to reap the rewards of one's hard work. For all the hours we put in, for all the sweat equity we invest, for as high on the corporate ladder as we climb or as much of a self-made person we try to be, we all hit the same inevitable stone ceiling, a tombstone. The cold, hard facts as Solomon records them here, are you can't take it with you. Once again, we're all in the same boat. It doesn't matter if you're a guy in the field, a woman at her desk, the janitor or the CEO, we all die. Rich, poor, powerful, weak, renowned, obscure, wise, foolish. No one can rise above the grave. No one can cheat or escape death. But wait, Solomon writes. Did you catch this? It gets worse. 
You know, worse. You're dead. How much worse can it get? Solomon says, but wait, it gets worse. You can't take it with you, and you also can't control what happens to all you've accomplished when you're gone. I mean, it's one thing to leave the product of all your work behind, but it's another thing for all you've labored to achieve to pass into the hands of another person. Solomon says he or she will not appreciate what they have received because they didn't expend any effort into acquiring it. And being so detached from what they have received, it's likely that someone will waste what you leave behind. That person might even tear down everything you spent your life to build up. Now, again, if you're... You know this book. If you're familiar with Solomon, Solomon had no idea how right he was, how prophetic his own words were. Because if you know Solomon's story, then you know his own son, Rehoboam, would do this very thing, foolishly plunging Israel, the world's superpower, he inherited into a civil war in the first year of his reign. The kingdom would become deeply and permanently divided from that point on. Deeply and permanently divided until both fell. You can't take it with you. You can't control what happens to it after you're gone. Once again, Solomon isn't telling us anything we don't know. Anything we can't see for ourselves. And yet, most of us remain workaholics, investing more time and energy into our jobs than anything else in our lives. Or, and this may apply to some of us, many of us here today, we exist as recovering workaholics, otherwise known as retirees. Oh, we brag about all the time we have. Man, we brag about all the time we have, all the trips we get to take. But deep down, we don't know what to do with ourselves if we're not large and in charge. We struggle with our significance as we feel put out to pasture without a specific job description that we can claim. We create work to do. We volunteer, and God love you, and thank you so much for all of you who do. We volunteer, but we get very possessive about our titles and our territory. And once again, whether you're a workaholic in the moment right now, or you're a recovering workaholic as a retiree, Solomon gives it to us straight as he puts the question to us, what do we get? What do we get for all the toil and anxious striving with which we labor under the sun? Solomon, did you catch it? Tells us what he got. Solomon right there in the question tells us what he got. Anxious striving. What did Solomon get for all his work? A ton of stress and a lot of worry. Because like so many, if you were listening, like so many, Solomon took his work home with him. All his labors left him, did you hear him say this? Sleepless at night when his weary and exhausted body and mind needed rest. In the end, his obsession 
over his work led to his depression in his retirement. And I'm here to tell you that there are many in this room right now who can relate, who are depressed in their retirement because of their obsession over their work, their career. I mean, and it's not just that, that aspect we can relate to. Again, the plan, right? I mean, what, when we, we tell, raise our kids, right? We tell them, get an education, get a, get a degree, and then get a good job. But we tell them that the plan, I mean, the way we paint this picture, we, it was painted for us, the plan, and correct me if I'm wrong on this, because I still hear it out there, the, the plan is we're supposed to work during the day so we can relax in the evening, right? That's the plan, right? But how many of us are never off the clock? How many of us have become so accustomed to postponing our relaxing in the evening for the weekend? Anyone going to acknowledge that? The plan is we're supposed to work during the day and then rest in the evening. But we've all just kind of culturally made this shift where, well, we'll rest on the weekend. And yet now, how many of us are working such long hours, six days instead of five, that that weekend that we're going to rest on has become a single 24-hour period. The weekend has become a day, a day of rest, if we're not on call. If we're not on call. Beloved, where is the value? This is what Solomon's saying. Where is the value if we work hard during the day and yet worry through the night? There is no rest. There is no joy. There is no peace in that kind of life. I've been there, I, was, I worked in the, before I was a pastor, not that a pastor's job isn't work, but I worked in the corporate world and part of what the crisis that happened to me early on in my life was in the midst of not resting, in the midst of you know, not relaxing in the evening, in the midst of my weekend coming down to one day, I, I told myself, oh, it'll get better. When I reach this, when this happens in my career, it's gonna get better. It's gonna get better. And every time I advanced, every time my position changed, it didn't get better. But it's going to get better. It's going to get better. And the moment that, that killed me, literally killed, died to myself, one of those dying moments, was when I was out to lunch with my boss, my boss who had brought me out to take his job. And man, that's what I was telling my newly married wife who never saw me in a state we knew no one in. It's gonna be awesome. You understand how young I am? Do you understand the career opportunity I have? Do you understand he's grooming me for his job and what that will mean, what we will get even before we have kids? And I went out to lunch with him one day and as we just were having a conversation like we always did during lunch, I realized something disturbing. He wasn't happy. He was saying the exact same things as me. It'll get better. But if it hadn't got better for him, it's never gonna get better for me. And the hard part was, I couldn't live that lie anymore. And suddenly I didn't know what to do with myself because I am the job. And in the midst of not knowing what to do, God called me to be a pastor. That's a whole other story. <laughs> Beyond my own personal story, I was listening to a, um, 
a radio program this week. The, the particular segment, I, I love this, the title of it. I had to go back to look it up because it's so long. But the particular segment on, on this radio program was, Whatever Happened to Peace, Love, and the American Summer Vacation? Or How the U.S. Became the No Vacation Nation? It talked about how our American workaholic culture, where even those who can don't take vacations anymore because of fear of someone who doesn't take a vacation will get ahead of them. Because as we all know, whether we want to admit it or not, whether we think it's fair or not, as we all know, jobs go to, jobs stay with, promotions and bonuses are given to the highest producing employees who indulge no interests or time outside of their career. Beloved, so many of us have dedicated ourselves to our jobs out of fear. We work in a perpetual state of insecurity, an increasing feeling of being underappreciated. Surveys of today's workers show a steady decline in job satisfaction. Everyone knows. You're not going to find everybody who's going to argue against this. Everyone knows how unhealthy our system is personally and corporately. Everyone knows, and still we play the game. We blame the economy as year by year we ramp up the costs. Ask yourself, does your job make you a workaholic? Does your job make you a workaholic? Is the rapid pace of modern technology, is that what's hurting us? No. And that's why Solomon is so hard, because he cuts right to the marrow of it. No, it's our own self-centeredness. Like Solomon, we rob ourselves of joy and rest. We delude ourselves into thinking if we, just, if we just do what we do faster, better, more efficiently, more profitably, then we will generate that feeling, that contentment we long for. We stress out over our work. We spend years in career crisis mode because our role, our job, becomes the essence of who we are. And that means we identify with, we judge ourselves and our worth according to what we do. And that's why, by the way, if you're depressed in retirement, that's why. Because your identity has come out of what you do. Your value has come out of what you can produce. And when you're trying to create your own job description, and yet you can't get up to the level of performance or position that you once had, you feel less than what you were, than what you are. <laughs> Our ability what Solomon is trying to get us to see, and he's going to keep pushing this through looking at other avenues, but our ability to experience joy, and joy is glad satisfaction. Our ability to experience joy is not related to what we do. It's not a product of our career or our ability, no matter how hard we work, no matter how great our achievements. Please, don't misunderstand me. We should all do the best we can at our jobs, and it's fantastic when you receive recognition in whatever form, in whatever you do, but that is not where our joy and our satisfaction comes from. We're looking at things again, and I, I, I went to hear this, this last week. I'm going to come back at it again. We, we look at things backwards. 
We look at things from the outside in rather than from the inside out. We think we act, we work believing if we improve the outside, it will necessarily improve the inside. But this doesn't bear out. When we work to improve the outside, yes, there's benefits, but any internal benefit from working on the outside is only temporary because we will have to, have to constantly monitor our externals. New problems will force us to continually tinker and improve what's happening on the outside. And that's the not being able to sleep at night. That's the perpetual sense of insecurity. But working from the inside out is different. Working from the inside out is recognizing that our joy, our satisfaction, the confidence we are searching for comes out of our relationship with Jesus. Not out of the work we do, but out of the work he's done for us. It is out of our relationship with Jesus, knowing who we are in Christ, finding our identity and security in the work he's freely done for us, that inner confidence and conviction bursts out of us, radiates outwardly, and enables us to truly embrace our externals, whatever they are, including our work. What I learned, and I didn't learn it immediately, but what I learned going back to that story of when I left my corporate job, and that's not the answer, by the way, just leave your corporate job, don't hear that, and became a pastor. I learned in what God did there the difference between having a job and pursuing a calling. There's a difference between having a job and pursuing a calling. You see, we, we, we live in a mentality where we seek knowledge, degrees in school, experience for knowledge's sake. And we do that in order to secure a good job, a job that pays well, that has good benefits, future growth potential. That's seeking, that's going after a job. But a call, here's how a call works. If we seek to know Christ, and this is building on what we talked about before, it's about do you know Jesus? Do you have a relationship with Jesus Christ? Because if we have that relationship, if we know Christ, then we will come to know ourselves. And as we come to know Christ and as we come to know ourselves, we will come internally to hear Jesus' call upon our lives, where he is placing us, where he purposes for us to work. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but how many of us, I'm not saying praying that you get the job or praying that you get a job. How many of you have ever looked at Jesus as your job placement person? You paid people to get you a job. You handed other people your resume. But how many of us actually say, Jesus, tell me where to work? Tell me what I'm supposed to be doing. Maybe some of you have. But I find most people, it's like, what? No one thinks of Jesus in the business of work placement. What do you think the Great Commission is? It's a general call to realize that we have a job to do but that Christ knows what that job is. And it's a calling, not a job. Employment services place us where our education, skills, and experience line up with a job description. Jesus doesn't work that way. And if you've had this experience, you know what I mean. Jesus places us in circumstances that may not be about our education, our skills, or our experiences. Does, they can, but it may not be about that. It may not be about a job description. No, Jesus places us in circumstances that enhance our relationship with him. 
and you might be teetering on the edge of that relationship with Christ. It may be the biggest obstacle because you have this sense of something that Jesus is calling you to do, but that won't be a good job. And yet, even though it will enhance your relationship with him, you're going to stick with the good job because that's where the security is. Really? Jesus calls us into circumstances that enhance our relationship with him as well as enhance our service to others. How many people hate their job? And how many of us, you know, do you know, you've experienced the difference when you go and receive service from someone who hates what they do? It's miserable, right? It, misery brings misery. We worked hard, we spent our money, do your job. But they hate what they do. But it's the exact opposite. How many of you have had the experience where someone loves what they do and you couldn't throw enough money at them in thanks as a tip, as a salary? You, they love what they do. That's a calling. Jesus places us in circumstances that enhance our relationship with him by enhancing our service to others. He puts us in experiences that teach us about ourselves. How many of you have worked in a job and you know so much about skills, the things you know to, to do the job? You've had, you've had like nightmares about what you're supposed to do, but you still don't know very much about yourself. Jesus places us in experiences that teach us about ourselves, that affirm our identity in, our purpose for the kingdom. This isn't fantasy. This isn't myth. This is how God created our lives to be. And if you are not living it, if you've never lived it, if you've all your life had a job, if you have a job now, even if it's not paid, why not have a calling instead? A job is a task. A calling is a passion. A job is working to survive. A calling is living to thrive. In a calling, work is a blessing. It's an opportunity for fulfillment. In a job, work is an obligation, and it, it's the needs. It needs to become the source of our satisfaction. When you have a relationship with God in Christ, your role or career is not the essence of who you are. When you have a relationship with God in Christ, your calling is an extension of who you are. Hear the difference. It's not the essence of who you are. It's an extension of who you are. Do you have a job? Or do you have a calling? And I'm here to tell you, retirees still working, it's never too late. It's never too late to trade your job for a calling. Oh, there will be sacrifices. And they may, on the surface of it, seem insurmountable and painful, but I am here to tell you, you if, you, if you step out in faith from a job into a calling, you will never look back. You will suddenly be able to nod your head rather than go, Solomon, please stop talking. You see, when the essence of our being is rooted in God's love and forgiveness, why would you never go back? Because when the essence of our being is rooted in God's love and forgiveness, our relationship with Christ, this flows outward. This flows outward not just to, not just to affect our job, where we are working, but it flows outward to color whatever we do, however we do it, and wherever we do it. 
Our experience with Christ gives meaning to our work and enables us to derive benefit from all we do, not only what we succeed at. That's, again, the difference between a job and a calling. In a job, a job is only profitable if we're successful. But a calling is fruitful even when we're not successful. Because as we all know, it's not always our successes that enhance our relationship with God or our relationship with others. The joy in in your heart because of Christ being in relationship with him enables you to appreciate the good, persevere through the bad, and pray in the midst of the challenges. And the beautiful thing, and this is, I think, the thing that's most powerful, that's sort of the inversion of the, the depression that Solomon has. You know, where Solomon basically says, well, we all end up in the same place, dead. But if we understand our common calling in Christ, different in how it's expressed, but if we all understand our common calling in Christ, the beautiful thing is the satisfaction that comes out of that calling, the peace and fulfillment we each long for that's available through Jesus is the same quality and quantity for everyone, no matter what you do. Whether you work at the White House or whether you work at Walmart. The joy, the grace, the glory of God is not reserved for the rich and famous or the highly trained. It's within reach of everyone. But the key, the key is Solomon has told us to receiving that joy of tasting such grace, of experiencing God's glory, is to realize the Lord calls each of us to leave behind a testimony rather than a legacy. The Lord calls each of us to leave behind a testimony rather than a legacy. Let's face it, the reason why many of us work so hard is we want to make our mark on the world. Even if it's just in that one chapter or office of that division, we want to make our mark on the world. We aim to create a legacy. We work hard. We're killing ourselves hours, six days a week because we want to leave to have a legacy to give our children and our family. And I've talked in other times, but I'll say it again. Hardest memorial services I work are the families whose grief is intermixed with them fighting over the legacy that their dearly departed is left behind. Who's going to get what? Who deserves what? You got yours already. I want mine. We can grieve now, but I'll see you in court. Do you think that's what the loved one had in mind? Christians don't leave behind legacies. I'm saying something very, very blunt and shocking right now. Christians don't leave behind legacies. We don't leave behind monies and properties to be passed on. I'm not saying if you do that you're not a Christian. I'm just saying that's not the ultimate aim of a Christian. Christians don't leave behind legacies, monies and properties to be passed on. And let me tell you why that shouldn't be our primary concern. Because when we're obsessing to build our legacy, when we're worrying about our legacy, what that fundamentally means at some level is we don't trust the fundamental gospel truth that the Lord has already built your legacy. Do you know that? The Lord has already built your legacy. That's why you're here, supposedly. You don't have to work so hard. You don't have to put all those monies in barns that you keep building bigger barns for, as Jesus talks about. Jesus has already taken care of your legacy. He has already set aside your inheritance in Christ. Do you believe that? Do you trust it? Then who cares what happens to the stock market? 
what you're going to leave to your kids or not leave to your kids. Christians don't leave behind legacies. They leave behind testimonies. Testimonies, the witness of a life lived in relationship with Jesus, the, the, the witness of a life spent sowing the seeds of salvation, introducing others to Christ, working out of the riches of God's amazing grace, unmerited forgiveness and unconditional love, and seeking the promise of heaven. In the same way that some of the most hard memorial services I do are where there's fight, fighting over and feuding over a legacy, some of the most powerful, some of the most inspirational, some of the most convicting memorial services is where there's no talk of legacy, but there's so much talk of testimony. Testimony of a life lived in relationship with Christ, of a life that introduced so many to Jesus, of a life that, was, that sowed seeds of salvation that are beginning to burst and bloom, a life that, that is defined by giving and sharing unconditional love, extending forgiveness, always keeping an eye on heaven. Those services literally bring heaven to earth. And people who sit in those services who don't share the faith of the dearly departed, they find themselves strangely moved, disturbed, because even though they want nothing to do with this God, they find themselves opening up. Because suddenly they are experiencing not a legacy that gets lost, that gets fought over, but this testimony is powerful. It draws them. It draws them upward. It draws them inward. You see, because legacies can be given away. But testimonies, they can be built upon. Testimonies can be built upon. So what are we leaving behind? What a question, right? <laughs> what are we leaving behind? Are we leaving behind a life lived in increasing knowledge of Jesus? A life lived out of the call of Christ? Or are we leaving behind a life spent accumulating facts, figures, and trivia? A life working to build an empire that will crumble, that will fall when you do. Beloved, Solomon continues to be so vulnerable and transparent. He today has opened up and examined the grand ledger of his education and his career for us to review. And with gut-level honesty, he has challenged the degree seeker and the workaholic in each of us. We gauge our lives and we elevate others based upon productivity. That's the world we live in. Get a good education. Work hard and labor long enough and you can earn, you can have the good life. This is what we tell our children. This is what we believe. But Solomon has profoundly shown us in all of our efforts to advance and progress, the only sense in which we are getting ahead is we are getting ahead of ourselves. Apart from God, all of our diplomas and certificates are nothing more than pieces of paper. All the knowledge we accumulate, all the work we do, if the Lord isn't in it, part of the lives we build, then we are just making castles in the sand. Beloved, the good life isn't something we build on our own under the sun. But then again, the good life isn't just biding our time for heaven and refusing to engage the world we live in either. We have much to learn. Still, no matter what age you are, we each have a calling to live out. And if you're 80 or pushing beyond 80, again, I remind you in this book that some of the greatest calls God ever made came to people in that, in that time frame. And they had the same 
pains, disabilities, and struggles that you did, they also had the same Spirit of God available to them to work miraculously. We all have work to do. Life is good. Yes, it is. Life is good because Jesus died for us and rose again. Life is good because Jesus died for us and rose again to bring us into communion with our Creator and with each other. Therefore, when we talk about the good life, the good life is fully and completely embracing this wonderful world we've been bequeathed. This life that we take with us into eternity. That's the good life. The good life is a life lived in trust and hope. It's a life lived out of the observation of small joys and daily beauty. It's a life lived in the messiness of relationships where we practice love and forgiveness even in the midst of betrayal and disappointment. It's where we experience joy and peace instead of worry and fear. The testimony of this kind of life, that's the only thing we can build that lasts. The testimony of a life lived in faith, hope, and love in Jesus Christ, that's what those yet unborn need us to pass on to them for tomorrow. Amen? Amen. Amen. Amen.